I'm Dan Kendall, and you're listening to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. Did you know that this is just one of the many shows that we create? In fact, from original podcasts like this one, to patient and professional educational content, to digital marketing, and even podcast advertising, we do a lot more than simply host conversations. We're mission-based media. Visit our website to learn more at missionbasedmedia.com. Welcome to Digital Health Today, Asia-Pacific Edition, your go-to podcast to learn about the transformation of healthcare in a region with over 4.5 billion people across more than 40 countries. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. The role of academia is an essential one for digital health. In addition to providing the platform to conduct clinical research and showcase where technology can create impact, the right environment also becomes the training ground for future leaders and change makers. And sometimes, we also have individuals whose passion and experience create successful connections between the distinctly different worlds of academia and business building. My guest today, Dean Ho, is one of these individuals. Dean is the Provost Chair Professor, Director of N1 and Wisdom, and Head of the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the National University of Singapore. He's also an experienced business builder and entrepreneur. Dean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So like me, you're a transplant to Singapore and to Asia Pacific. Tell us a little about your story about how did you arrive here to Singapore? I moved to Singapore almost three years ago, but I really started coming to Singapore many years before that, multiple times a year. And what was really exciting for me was when I think about innovation in things like AI, digital health and beyond, This process requires successfully traversing a roadmap that integrates innovators, policy, regulatory, behavioral sciences, healthcare, economics, and beyond. And what I really loved was the accessibility of the stakeholders from these domains so that we could not only accelerate novel technologies from moving forward, but also innovating how clinical trials are designed to truly determine, and then optimize the effectiveness of these novel therapeutics and devices that we're developing. And so you started with uh, clinical trials as something that we can innovate on here in Asia Pacific, and that is one of the topics that we'll cover for our audience today. Let's talk about your role first. So you came here, you joined NUS, as people call National University of Singapore here. What was your mission? What was your remit? What did you decide to take on as a challenge? At the National University of Singapore, I direct two institutes. So the first one is known as the N1 Institute for Health, or N1. And the second one is the Institute for Digital Medicine, also known as Wisdom. These are both clinical stage institutes that focus primarily on intervention. So that's pretty unique because intervention is more treatment-related a little bit less on the diagnostic side. Now, there are amazing institutes that focus on diagnostics, but we look at treatment. And that requires the convergence of a unique set of disciplines from clinical trial design innovation, but all the way to things like how do we harness digital and AI to optimize how we design treatment regimens for patients? How do we leverage the very same platforms for dosing? And how do we take all of this and truly personalize care? So these institutes are really a foundation to my vision, which is to A, demonstrate that this level of innovation can certainly occur within universities, which we know it happens all the time. This innovation is prevalent and pervasive. 
but to also show that we can effectively save lives out of an academic institute because we are successfully bringing all the stakeholders together. And then to sum all of that up, I also head the Department of Biomedical Engineering. So I think being a director of institutes makes me a better head of department and vice versa. Being a head of department makes me a better director because it's important to impart the findings that we realize and the innovation that's developed to help craft a gateway towards the next generation of biomedical engineer. And so I'm grateful and we're fortunate that we can kind of converge novel technology, really groundbreaking work in the clinic with defining how we train and educate this next generation of biomedical engineering leadership. And so we have a lot of exciting plans in store for how we kind of merge both innovation and education to impact the industry and the community at large. Love the vision. When I think of some of the best academic institutions and how they can really influence change, having a big picture vision and then being able to break that down into ways to help transmit that to various other stakeholders and improve talent is what just makes a huge distinction for the best academic institutions. And you're clearly on that road. Tell us a bit more about talent. You've got these young minds that you're shaping. Where do you see that there's one, a gap of what you need to make sure you impart to this next generation And two, how are students coming in? Are they demonstrating the capabilities that you feel are necessary? I think what's exciting about having experience working with the institutes and the department is that we like to think ahead. And we don't think of them as much as gaps as they are thinking ahead as far as we can. And also enabling our trainees to be as adaptive to changing landscapes as possible. Even without COVID emerging, it became very clear that we needed future biomedical engineers to be able to interface with disciplines that certainly include medicine, which happens all the time, but well beyond singular disciplines in terms of collaboration. We want our biomedical engineers, for example, to interface well with business school students and faculty, not just for entrepreneurship, but for areas like healthcare economics, behavioral sciences, because as new technologies evolve, we need to make sure we develop ways for the patients or the users, could be the clinicians, to use and continue to use these technologies. We need our students to be able to work with law, with psychology, public health, and beyond. And so as we move forward in a biomedical industry, the ability to successfully work with a broad range of disciplines early will be essential because something that I've considered long important is interdisciplinary empathy. When we think about biomedical engineering, can biomedical engineers work with clinicians? Clinicians includes doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, as an example. But can we work successfully with business school students, with law students, with public policy students, with public health students, psychology students, and beyond. And so when we think about this next generation, uh, it's really about can we quickly ensure that students are going to be adaptive and innovative with the proper stakeholders right in the beginning. Now, when I think of some of the leading minds today who talk about the future of AI, Kai-Fu Lee being one, one of the prognostications for the future is AI will replace a lot of jobs. 
And I think the philosophy you're taking in preparing the leaders of tomorrow is fantastic because it's creating something that can't be replicated by technology. It's this empathy, it's cross-collaboration, and it's problem-solving for really complex challenges which require soft skills. And uh, I think that's great. You're really helping to prepare these leaders. You're absolutely correct. When it comes to AI, once we develop a novel AI platform, we need to know, are the clinicians comfortable using it? Is this platform making their lives easier? And the only way to make that happen is to have these discussions and to encourage this interdisciplinary collaboration. If you don't mind, I'm going to share you a very quick story about an amazing biomedical engineering student that we worked with during the undergraduate days. And then the student subsequently graduated and joined our institute. So you have this person coming from engineering over to medicine for the institute. And we're working on a trial where we are optimizing the dosing prospectively of stage four cancer patients. And to see the students certainly implement the technology well, that was great. That was very rewarding for everybody. But then to see the student take it further and start to deeply evaluate the medical record of the patient to understand how they are clinically responding and to interface with the clinicians, the whole team of clinicians, which ultimately resulted in this patient getting a lower dose of treatment and a better treatment outcome. They went from being a non-responder to a responder. And seeing a student go from an undergraduate career into a research career and being able to have these decisive discussions with the whole spectrum of stakeholders, that is the future. And I'm immensely proud of the ability to merge and integrate these communities together. Awesome. So that's a good lead into going back to clinical trials and the way that academic institutions, especially ones like yourselves who have thought through the not just one touch point, but multiple touch points in working with private industry to help them really demonstrate the efficacy of their solutions. Tell us more about where do you see the opportunity for large multinational organizations to digital health startups to co-create and collaborate with your organization? That's a great question. So first off, I think that when we think about new technologies that are being developed, for example, even if they are AI discovered therapies, or if it's medical devices based on AI that are guiding treatment or clinical decision support, I think one of the standard next stages of validation are the randomized controlled trials. And we have to think beyond traditional trial design. And this is a product of both before COVID and because of COVID, we have to better find out, are things efficacious? But can we simultaneously optimize the performance or the outcomes of these interventions if we innovate trial design? So I'll give you one example. When trials are designed for therapeutics, patients are often randomized and placed in a dosing cohort. They get randomized to get a low dose, a middle dose, or a high dose of treatment. And if you have a patient who got the high dose, let's say that uh, it's for oncology, they don't respond. Uh, they don't respond to this treatment. Cancer gets worse. Toxicity is high. They are removed from the trial at that point. And we will never have known if they could have responded to a lower dose. They are classified as a non-responder when, in fact, they could be a responder. Using emerging trial designs that we are implementing out of N1 and Wisdom, 
the patient I just mentioned before, where we're getting low dose and going from non-responder to responder is demonstration that these patients are out there, people who could actually respond to experimental or investigational therapy. And so to address this challenge, the institutes have put together a regulatory team that is outstanding. And this team is already implementing these first-in-kind trial designs, which has already gotten feedback and excitement from industry. Because what we have out of the institutes and out of academia is this agility, this agility to innovate the clinical trial design advancement that we've known for a long time was always needed. But to ensure that we're properly bridging our ideas with actual deployment and implementation, we need to have active discussions with industry, with the regulators, with a bigger community of stakeholders, which is why Singapore is very exciting because this can happen and it can happen quickly. And so in order to really bridge collaboration with industry, with regulatory and beyond, it's more than just the technology. The core ethos of our institutes is that technology alone cannot redefine healthcare. It's really about true interdisciplinary engagement and accessibility, and that's what we have here. And that ethos is very motivating to help instill collaboration and that spirit of let's do more and help solve problems for people and make their lives better. Now, you've described a fantastic vision and the steps you're executing on. With the mentality of an entrepreneur, I always think about there's always leading edge. And then how do you achieve that at massive scale? So you're helping a variety of institutions across countries. Where's Asia Pacific, Southeast Asia, if you want to constrain it to that, to this part of the world, in this journey to see the effect you're having at massive scale? Are we one of 10 or further along than that? I think we're getting there and we're going to, things are going to start to ramp up very quickly. And a lot of that is driven and catalyzed by this accessibility that we have here. As an example, I currently serve as a member of the working group on a WHO working group for AI for Health regulatory considerations. And it's a privilege because we get a chance to interact with an international community of tech developers, uh, regulators, policy, ethics, and beyond. And something that's quite clear from some of these discussions, as well as other discussions in the region, is that our ability to quickly get feedback, to quickly implement novel trial designs following rigorous review, this allows our region here to be at the leading edge of what the next generation of clinical innovation, clinical trial innovation, this is what it looks like. And so if I even look at the past year, we worked on a project called Identify to optimize combination therapy design against the coronavirus. And once those results came out, we were obtaining feedback. We were reached out to by clinical communities, by companies from around the world for guidance on not only which trials to think about running, but also which trials to not run in order to both avoid giving patients the wrong combination, as well as to avoid trialing the wrong drug. And so looking at this region here, I think we are few years away or less of experiencing this massive inflection of being a go-to focal point for innovation, as well as strategies to innovate how we validate 
these strategies. Well, you're one of these people who, as we've already heard, is amazingly forward thinking and have found a way to really collaborate with others. And we haven't even yet touched on your entrepreneurial journeys. And I think that's what makes your experience highly relevant to others to learn from, because on top of being able to provide this guidance and be a connector and educate, you're also a doer. You're also someone who's building a company. Tell us more about what you're doing there. I've co-founded companies before. One of them is uh, Kyan Therapeutics. And Kyan harnesses digital medicine-based approaches to dramatically accelerate and optimize how combination therapies are designed. And also, once they're designed, how they are properly administered to patients. This addresses virtually completely overlooked aspects of bringing therapies to patients. Now, AI is quite exciting because there's a lot of companies out there doing great work on leveraging AI to design drug compounds as potential lead candidates. But the thing is, after a drug candidate is identified, how that candidate is used certainly has a profound impact on the success or lack of success of a clinical trial. And so there's this perception that drug discovery, which is designing the molecule, is the same as drug development. In fact, these terms are often used interchangeably, but they are in fact different segments of this roadmap that do need to be seamlessly integrated. Now, Kyan focuses on the development side. Even if you have a very promising drug compound, if it's not shepherded forward correctly, and I mean put into the right combination correctly, if the doses are not identified correctly, it's likely going to be trial failure. But here's the thing. What we often do with bringing therapeutics forward is we put together some drugs we think are going to be great as a combination, and then we go look for the dose. But a completely overlooked aspect of this is you can take good drugs and find their dose, but how about understanding how the dosage picks the drugs that belong in that combination in the first place. This is an interplay. The drug finds the right respective dose in a combination. The right respective dose finds the drugs that belong there in the first place. And what often happens is these truly optimal combinations are comprised of therapies we would have never thought about using in the first place. And what's a big differentiator here is we're not using pre-existing data to feed algorithms and make predictions. We are pairing prospective experimental validation with an optimization process. And now having had this experience, as we know, technology alone cannot transform healthcare. It's about engagement. And so it took many discussions with clinicians, with regulators, with vice presidents of clinical development, with preclinical development from industry to really bridge this gap of trying something completely different than what's done now and actually develop partnerships. And we need this mindset of agility, of the ability to adapt, the ability to build bridges and really come to recognize no matter how awesome a technology is, it's important to provide some roadmap or viewpoint for the customer. The user could be a patient, could be a doctor, could be a nurse, could be a pharmacist, could be a company. How do you properly build this into your workflow? No matter how awesome my tech is, if I cannot build it into someone else's workflow, it will remain an idea. And so having had this opportunity to look at both academic innovation of deployable and scalable innovation has been immensely rewarding. 
Amazing. I think that this philosophy of being able to co-create is something that with digital health and where we are today, I viewed kind of the early stages of digital health was less solving very narrow solutions that were complex and, and required technology. But we're now in this phase where we have to collaborate. And I think COVID has really emphasized and shown the power of when you get smart minds together and you have urgency behind it, how quickly can we create something meaningful that you look at the vaccines and what we have as options available to us. And I'm excited to see what you do in the future, both with your academic life as well as your entrepreneurial life. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks again, Tony, for having me. And that's a wrap on this episode. You can review the show notes for links to reach Dean and to learn more about his work at NUS. Before I go, here's how you, our audience, can support us. Please share this podcast with others. And if you follow or subscribe, you'll get updates on new episodes and other content. You can also email me at apac at digitalhealthtoday.com if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes. Through my website, www.tonyestrella.com, you can learn more about my fiction writing and my other healthcare work, including my white papers and other podcasts. You can also reach me on Twitter, WeChat, and LinkedIn. And finally, please visit our website at digitalhealthtoday.com to hear other episodes from our podcasting team and my earlier episodes, including season one. This show was researched and written by Taliosa and produced along with mission-based media. The sound and music was by Ivan Yurich. And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening. Hey, Dan Kendall here. Thanks for tuning in to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. This episode may be over, but there's plenty more where this came from. Just visit our website to find other great shows featuring digital health leaders and innovators. Find us at digitalhealthtoday.com. That's digitalhealthtoday.com.